Hi, Flock family. This is David Magnus, a.k.a. the original Flormingo, coming to you from Orlando, Florida. I just want to say everybody's doing a great job with their social distancing, but make sure you keep uh, in touch with your friends, your family, and uh, your loved ones. Keep those hands clean. Stay home if you're sick. Call your doctor if you have any questions. And uh, be well, everyone, and we'll get through this and get back to soccer. Welcome to the virtual highbury. Thanks uh, to uh, Flamingos, by the way, for the introduction uh, to another episode of Forwards Backwards podcast. As always, uh, tip your bartenders, which you can do virtually via Venmo, and it is Joe-Cats-16, which if you've uh, loved the Highbury, uh, you should definitely do. Uh, Dan, Peter, well, and I'm gonna, about to get to our guests, so I don't want to drop that too soon, have, have all enjoyed the patronage of, of the Highbury, so encourage you as well in Madison, elsewhere, wherever you've been a regular to tip your bartenders. As always, I'm joined it's by the Joe Katz, K A T Z, by the way, not C A T S. Yep, Joe Dash K A T Z Dash sixteen. As always, I'm joined by the Jerry Royce to my Carlton Fisk, Dan Fallon. Dan, any footballer, active or not, living or dead, who you would least like to be quarantined with. <laughs> I mean, so this is going to be the obvious answer. It's Alexi Lawless, but I have a new reason for why it's Alexi Lawless. He actually told a really funny story on Twitter the other day about um, uh, hanging out with Michael Ballack. And uh, Ballack asked him what he wanted to drink. Uh, and <laughs> Alexi's drink of choice was a Bailey's on the Rocks. Yeah. Um, which just fueled my <laughs> feeling that that is a gentleman I don't want to hang out with if I don't have to. Now, the, the fun part of the story was that Michael Bollock went and got the drink, brought it back, and it was a pint glass of Bailey's on the rocks. And he said, you Americans like it big. Uh, <laughs> like Michael Bollock, I think I'd want to hang out with Michael Bollock. I just wouldn't want Alexi Lawless. Like, yeah, I, I think that's fair. Party. This, to me, was the easiest one ever. Phil Neville. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if, you've, if, if our listeners have read that story about him and his wife. But, oh, man, that guy's got w- some odd ideas. And then you put in that nasally, pretentious-sounding accent he's got. Oh, man, I'd, one of us would be dead in 12 hours. <laughs> Agreed. We, we are also happy to be joined, and we hope he's still on the line here, uh, by the only man alive who can probably explain the significance of that Jerry Royce, Carlton Fisk reference, the Che Guevara of American soccer, Peter Wilt. Good to be here. I did drop off a video, but I'm still on with audio. Oh, great. Great. So do you want to tell people why that that Carlton Fisk, Jerry Royce uh, is significant? Do you know? I would love to, but I can't. So Ah. they never played on the same team together because Jerry Royce was Pittsburgh, St. Louis, and Fisk was Red Sox, White Sox. Their paths must have crossed. Well, did Royce pitch at so opening the American League day, Opening day, 1989. They are the oldest uh, ever battery to pitch together. Oh, Royce pitched for the White Sox. Day. Yep. In, I think it was 1989. 
And the line from the, the Chicago Tribune story uh, was, it proved you're never too old to beat the Angels. Find <laughs> <laughs> age 81. Although Jamie Moyer, uh, and I forget who his catcher was, are the oldest all-time uh, battery, you know, pitcher-catcher duo in history. Uh, Jamie Moyer, one of my friends in college, bought his car once. Make of that what you will. <laughs> Uh, so without, uh, sort of further ado, uh, we, we have a couple of segments. We're going to talk to Peter. Uh, one of the things we're going to talk about obviously is USL league one. And, uh, you know, this morning, Dan and I were fortunate enough to be on a call with the president of USL league one, Jake Edwards, president uh, of USL, USL generally period, period. full stop. Uh, and so Dan, what, what, what were the, uh, you know, what was the, the context for that and what? What kind of transpired this morning? Um, so this was the breakfast with the Mingos where they were promoting the uh, wonderfully named Wake the Flock Up Coffee from uh, Just Coffee Cooperative. Peter, do you know who named that coffee? I'm guessing it was Dan. <laughs> I, finally achieved, I finally achieved something, Peter. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so there was a group of us. Um, it was a high-powered meeting with... Uh, Jake Edwards and Connor Kaloya was on the call, and then also uh, El Capitan, uh, Connor Turbo Tobin, and um, just a chance for everyone to get together, have some coffee, ask some questions. Um, and I think the the joke was that I think we started at uh, I forget what time nine o'clock, and the the, the over under on when uh, Pro, Pro Pro Rel would would come up. I think we I think we hit the under. It was the first question out of the game. <laughs> um, so, and I, I don't think this is any this isn't any surprise. I think the league has been pretty clear that long term, that is something they want to pursue. I don't think that that's been something they've they've tried to hide or not say. I, I think they're like we're not there now, and there's a lot of hurdles before they get there. But I mean, I think Jake made the case that at some point that is where they would like to see the league at. The interesting point part for me was that he included League Two, um, USL League Two in that conversation, which I think, you know, there's some questions around that versus, you know, amateurs versus professionals and all that. But so that was, I think, kind of the, you know, the first question out of the gate. Uh, a lot of talk about stadiums, um, trying to convince teams uh, to go their own route on a stadium for um, – revenue purposes for scheduling purposes uh and pointing at louisville being kind of the uh shining example of like what is possible at at the at, at the championship level at least in that case um and then the other, the other big thing was the the schedule they're hoping yeah. for a full schedule uh for you know 14 home games for uh forward madison this year you know for the league you know uh if they have to play wednesday saturday like we proposed to to Connor Turbo Tobin last week, uh, you know, that Wednesday, Saturday, they're going to do it. Um, that was good news. You know, uh, Connor Kaloya seemed optimistic about getting all the friendlies in. Uh, we may be a little bit more skeptical about that possibility, but I did want to, you know, since we have Peter here and, and Peter, I should also mention that Connor was cracked a beer at nine o'clock in the morning, which may have uh, influenced his optimism about <laughs> life in general. Yeah. Um, the rest of us were drinking coffee. I was drinking coffee with no Baileys in it, Mr. Lawless. Um, but yeah, the, the, and I think what Jake from Jake Edwards said was 
they're basically modeling kind of the season on like a rolling two week kind of calendar. So, you know, if, if we, you know, using whatever date we're at, well, whenever the CDC says we can start going back out, you start kind of modeling out, okay, what if, if we could start that date, this is what we can get in. If it's two weeks later, this is what we can get in and then keep moving it out. And he did say they would investigate other opera, you know, other scenarios for playoffs. And, and we talked about it on the podcast the other day about, you know, maybe a single table or doing a, Peter might have some insight into the old, was it the old kind of Klausasora, Apertura, first half champ, second half champ, let them play one match. Um, so there's probably some options out there that they could explore. Good Liga MX reference there, Dan. You know. There, uh, Peter, you know, I think there are a couple of things there that we can ask you about. The The big one that I wanted to bring up, and we have steered clear of the promotion relegation uh, conversation on this podcast, mostly because it just kind of never goes anywhere. Uh, but you have uh, literally written the manifesto. Uh, one of the reasons we call you the Che Guevara of American soccer is you have your own manifesto. And uh, I wanted to get, you know, some thoughts from you on, you know, pro rel and, and what you're seeing and what you think about the kind of longer term championship, you know, USL league one kind of pro rel thoughts. Well, I think having a manifesto makes me more <laughs> of the Ted Kaczynski <laughs> than of the Che Guevara of the subject, uh, but I'll take either one. Uh, yeah. I, I think Jake probably handled it appropriately and, and truthfully in that it's on the radar and it's something that would generally be positive, uh, yet it's in the future. Uh, you know, the leadership of USL has always told me that they really want to make sure that they have critical mass at all the levels, and not just critical mass of teams, but critical healthy, financially healthy mass of, of teams at all levels before they pursue it. Uh, you know, th that may, certainly makes business sense. Uh, because the you know the trickiest part about promotion relegation is the financial risk it um, implies not only to the relegated teams but frankly to some of the promoted teams that will then be forced to step up to compete at a higher level. So making sure that all the clubs are financially healthy before pursuing it makes sense. Though the longer you wait, you can argue the more difficult it will be to come up with a financial mechanism to provide corrections. You know, a, a club that's been in the second division for let's say 20 years, and now, you know, and they've paid a hefty entry fee, and now all of a sudden they're relegated to a, a lower division, how are they compensated? And, and why should a, a lower division team that didn't pay that hefty expansion fee be able to get around that? Uh, because of on-field performance. And uh, there's plenty of negotiation and different opportunities or you know, ways of getting around that. So I, I think hopefully that won't be what stops it. And hopefully we'll live to the day to see it happen. <laughs> well, and I think this is one of the things that um, your manifesto did that I think is often missing in this promotion relegation kind of conversation. Uh, if I can draw on the wall of books behind me, uh, you can't see that on the podcast, but from graduate school, we used to talk about the synchronic and diachronic uh, perspective. And 
that's basically, you know, synchronic being the structures in place right now and, and diachronic across time, the history. And, you know, you kind of uniquely have a lot of perspective on the thought, thoughts and thinking that went into establishing this sort of structure of MLS long ago, um, because they were really trying to correct mistakes that had doomed soccer in, in the United States previously. And also, like you said, guarantee some stability for ownership, right? Right. It's, it's managing growth. And MLS has done a fabulous job of that. And it's a balance because you want to grow the, the caliber of the product. You want to play on the field to improve over time. And that takes an investment. And that investment will put the teams at a financial risk if it doesn't come with parallel revenue increases. And they've done it smartly with single entity, with um, salary budgets at first, and then salary caps once there was a CBA. They've added um, through the Beckham rule, the designated player. They've increased the number of designated players. They've come up with new financial mechanisms to allow teams that are prepared and willing to improve play to do so without forcing every team to do so. And now they're getting, I think, to the next stage where they're gonna to try to simplify those mechanisms and yet keep the investment level increasing over time. Uh, so it's, it, it's, um, it, it's been a very manufactured uh, way of keeping stability. It's, it limits the free market aspect, um, which has, has pluses and minuses, of course, to it. So down the road, you know, a, a USL or some other entity that tries doing promotion relegation, uh, if it ends up being a threat to MLS, maybe that's what's needed to force them uh, to embrace a version of it themselves. And that was the, you know, the question I, I asked Jake today was, you know, how do they view, how does USL view MLS? And I know there's a partnership and there's been a partnership for a long time, but at some point there are, there are, and, and Jake acknowledges this, there's a, there is a large portion of soccer fans in the United States who do not follow MLS for whatever reason. There's, there's not a team in their market or they, they don't like the model or it doesn't kind of match up with what they view soccer to be like in other places in the world. And I think, you know, I, I certainly don't have the answers, but um, your, you know, your points earlier about um, how do you do this financially? You know, I think at some point you take the risk that it's going to be more, it's going to be a more compelling product uh, and a more compelling league to certain fans that are out there that'll say, you know what, I'd rather watch a league where there's promotion relegation and there's teams that might go down. I don't care that they're playing in smaller stadiums. I don't care that they're playing in smaller markets. That's the, you know, and at some point the tide starts to turn where people find that to be more interesting. And I guess, you know, that kind of gets to your point about whether yeah. at some point feels pressure that there's another league out there doing things kind of the way it happens all over the world. Yeah. I suspect that if a league does that, um, promotion relegation will be only one aspect of determining the fan interest in that league. It'll certainly, in my opinion, bump the interest. Yep. But there's other factors, not the least of which is uh, quality of play, that will ultimately mm -hmm. determine which league or leagues get 
uh, the interest from uh, from fans. You know, there's been some talk lately of MLS having some sort of partnership with Liga MX uh, or even a merger and, and creating promotion relegation within that. I mean, that's something that, you know, I, I brought up theoretically probably 15, 20 years ago. And, you know, it comes down to broadcast rights, in my opinion. If the sum of a merger like that can increase um, the, the broadcast rights, well, then it can start to make sense. And yeah. same with promotion relegation. If being relegated in a pro-rel system still allows a club to make more money than they would have in a non-pro-rel setup, then it's easier for ownership to agree to it. And I think a lot of people, you know, I think we've mentioned this on the pod before, but, and I'm, I think I'm correct in saying this, Liga Max is the number one watched league in the United States. If I'm not, am I correct in that on television? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. When is, when has being correct ever stopped us then? <laughs> um, Peter, you know, a lot of people view uh, Pro-Rel as kind of a magic bullet to, to solving soccer in the U.S. To your mind, what's the biggest problem facing soccer in the United States right now? Well, it isn't a silver bullet? A magic uh, bullet? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Other Pro-Rel was. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, you know, uh, I don't think so, but, you know, some people on the Internet, uh, you know, might, might, might think so. You're asking, you know, what is the biggest single obstacle? Yeah. Uh, and I, I suppose it's, to, to consolidate it to one word, is credibility. It's, 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 it's credibility to, of the American leagues, of, of MLS in particular. Uh, and that's being addressed over time, as I talked about with the designated player and improvement in, in play. Uh, improvement of broadcast agreements, but it still has a long way to go. It's it's being solved in certain markets. Um, it's not being solved in neutral markets. You know, kind of to Dan's point earlier. You know, if if you're in uh, Boise, Idaho, you're really and you're a huge soccer fan. You really don't care about uh, MLS. Maybe there's some Sounders fans there. Um, or displaced uh, fire fans. But for the most part, neutral markets don't care about MLS. They will care about either Liga MX or uh, EPL or Bundesliga. So it's that credibility. And how do you improve the credibility? Generally with the play on the field. So over time, they're going to need to continue to improve that. Um, I, don't, I think it's going to continue to be an evolution, not a revolution. I don't think no. it's going to happen um, overnight, but I think we've seen it in the last 10 years get incredible improvement in that aspect. Well, and I think, you know, one of, to my mind, you know, uh, and I think this would help the, the credibility of the league and, and we're starting to see it is, you know, you MLS starting to embrace uh, the prospect of being a selling league in some sense. Right. Um, and, you know, there are all, all sorts of structural obstacles in place on that um but it sounds like you know mls clubs are now starting right. to see the profits from developing players and selling them on right right it's 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 both it's it's being a a true selling league especially with selling domestic players um 
but also a buying league of uh, players of a certain age. Yeah. You know, um, you know, we all love to see star players that we know of or have watched on Saturday and Sunday mornings come to MLS, but we really need to be getting the 18 to 26 year olds uh, that are still in their prime. And that's the difficult thing if the league doesn't have credibility because their national team coaches want them to be playing at the highest possible level. And if MLS is viewed as a tier two or tier three league, they're not going to be enticed to play here, even if the money is comparable. So the quality of play, it's a catch 22. Um, but if the quality of play can continue to increase and improve and MLS can become a top five league in the world, then that whole dynamic changes, uh, both for selling players and, and buying players. And I think, you know, to, to that point, Peter, I can think of two players that kind of illustrate your two points. Giovinco in Toronto, who was phenomenal in MLS, and basically the Italian national team said, we're not going to pick you while you're playing there. Um, but then the second part of that is Pity Martinez coming to Atlanta last year, a player pretty much in the prime of his career, um, who probably can make, I'm assuming he's making a little bit more money, <laughs> must have been probably the reason he wanted to come. But the fact that Atlanta could go out and get a player of his caliber, South American player of the year, um, and get him into that team is it, it should, I think also starts to show a little bit of that evolution of, of what you're talking about. Yeah. And I think MLS is doing a much better job in the last several years, getting young players from Latin America. Mm -hmm. um, if they can do the same thing with Africa and Asia uh, and even Eastern Europe, uh, that will continue to help. You know, getting the young players from Western Europe is a real uphill climb. And that's kind of the last uh, frontier in that regard. I think as well, you know, one of the things that can can help is, you know, obviously if we sell players on and they, they succeed. Um, but I also think, you know, putting the systems in place to help players transition into a new culture, into a new, uh, you know, uh, world in some senses, new language. And I was kind of curious and, and to kind of, you know, change the topic ever so slightly to our uh, you know, topic at hand. Last year, we had a prominent loan player from from Panama, Josie Al Nunez. And I'm curious as to, you know, uh, what uh, sort of things were, were, were put in place to help ease his transition into the United States. You know, it must have been quite a sight for him walking out on opening day to to snow. Um, but, you know, th is that something as as a, you know, soccer honcho you you gave some thought to is easing that transition yeah. absolutely and, and that's when you're recruiting players that acclimation uh concern is an important one it goes along with the character uh, of a player uh the experience of a player the age of a player their family situation uh kind of the i don't want to say intangibles but the non-soccer aspects of it so you do your homework um you try to make sure that uh, within the team uh, he can be comfortable. It's relatively easy with Spanish speaking players, um, not as difficult as some people might think, uh, just because the United States is, especially in urban areas, um, I don't want to say for all practical purposes, but uh, certainly within a, a soccer family, it's bilingual. And, you know, especially in Josiel's case where he spoke no English, um, he really needed the teammates that spoke Spanish 
Uh, he needed to be living with them in an apartment complex uh, so that they could serve as his transportation, as uh, his menu readers, <laughs> uh, and his social uh, friends. Uh, you know, one of the most you know, difficult times I had in, in that aspect was with the Chicago fire. It must have been about 2004, I think. We signed a Slovakian player, uh, Lubos Reiter, and we had no other Slovakians. We had uh, no other Eastern Europeans on the team. And uh, he spoke very little English, which um, I think came as a surprise to me because I thought most Europeans spoke about seven or eight languages. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, and also his personality was such that he was a bit introverted and uh, he never really did fit in with the team and it, it wasn't a, a successful uh, transition, even though he's a talented player on the national team uh, for Slovakia at the time. So yeah, those things can be issues, uh, but it's, it's not just about language. Uh, it, a lot of it has to do with, with personality and you're right, what, what the team will do in order to make sure that he's in a proper environment and setting has the basics he needs. So when he comes to town, um, you know, the team ops manager makes sure he has everything he needs. He's got, you know, the apartment, the phone, the cable TV, uh, access to, to good food um, and transportation. And if, if the, those basics are available and he's got that community within the team, that's 90% of it. Having a community in the fan base is also huge. Uh, the flock uh, has been tremendous being uh, a community, not just for foreign players coming here, uh, but for American players too. That, you know, if they're fresh out of college, this might be their first time uh, living on their own. And having in a smaller community like Madison, I think it's easier for you know, fans to get to know the players and the fans, the players being willing uh, to interact with them as needed and feel comfortable with them. So, Peter, maybe using that as a little bit of a launching pad into um, telling people, you know, some people may know, some people might not know what, you know, before uh, you had to be uh, relegated to your home, what was your, the role you were serving with USL um, in their growth? Yeah, sure. So, USL uh, asked me to come on board to help them develop supporters culture throughout the USL leagues, in particular USL uh, League One, uh, but also with the championship, in particular with new markets coming on board and also helping existing teams that may want to improve their supporters culture. Uh, so uh, I mostly work from home, uh, but I'll travel uh, maybe one week a month or I would until this uh, <laughs> coronavirus outbreak. And, uh, I, I said to uh, said to Keith uh, way back when, when we were going to try to have you on a little bit more regularly, the joke was we were going to do where in the world is Peter Will? Uh, and I told Keith today that if the answer was anywhere other than home, we were going to call the police. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was wondering if you'd ask Jake Edwards when I'm going to get to work again, because they did put me my job on pause <laughs> so, until the games are played again. So, you know, I, I, I may not believe in what our president is telling us, but 
from his lips to God's ears, uh, may we be back in business by Easter Sunday. <laughs> Wait, which president are we talking about? <laughs> now, now, you know, it, it's sort of interesting, you know, Peter, um, one of the things that, you know, the, there were, you know, there's a certain contingent of the internet that hates everything uh, soccer related in the United <laughs> States, that it's all corporate. And there were, you know, that, that Peter Wilt is now with USL out there astroturfing, you know, supporters groups. And, that doesn't seem particularly fair to me, uh, you know, uh, as a non. Yeah, I, I think it's a fair concern. Um, I mean, when you look at the job on the surface, it does sound like it. I, I think the important thing for fans to understand is that my position is to facilitate communication and execution between supporters and new markets. Uh, and existing markets, existing teams. Uh, it's not my position or anyone's position to tell a supporters group what to do and how to do it. Uh, and you know, my experience is certainly mainly on the management side. Um, I've been a fan uh, for a long time, especially a few of the teams I started. So I, I understand the fans perspective, but I'm in no position to tell teams uh, or supporters what they have to do. Uh, but my experience allows me, I think, to assist with facilitating, especially communications um, between existing teams and supporters groups when things aren't going well. And in new markets, uh, I can um, identify fans in the market, uh, help update them on what the process is, where they are in the process of getting a new team. I mean, the exciting thing for me is, the league is, is growing by upwards of 30 to 40 new teams over the next five years. And to be part of that is, is, is pretty special because, you know, there's probably not any other time in American soccer history that someone's going to be able to be involved in that sort of growth. Well, and so you tapped on, I think, really what I, I saw as one of your real skills. Um, and, and it really came out with getting the flock off the ground. You didn't, you know, you didn't organize the, the flock. Uh, but you've you helped identify and cultivate, I think, the right people. You know, I think we on the on the podcast uh, sing the praises of of our beloved, dear chairman, uh, leader uh, Andrew Schmidt, and, and you know the whole board and all of that. But I think that's something that you do really well is is find yeah. people to partner with. Yeah, the right people are out there in every market. Uh, I think they they need to be, I'll say, sold that a particular team uh, is worth their investment of time, energy, and money. Um, you know, when I first contacted Andrew, he was skeptical uh, about a new team in Madison. You know, they've heard it before. There had been other half-hearted efforts. Um, but after sitting down with him and Liam a couple of times, uh, he was convinced that this team was going to be a true community team and allow a supporters group to develop organically and have a role, an important role in the development of the team itself. And it, it seems like common sense, uh, but the important thing is making sure that the growth of the team is from the bottom up, the community roots upwards and not, top down. And if you go into a market and you talk to various supporters, whether it's American outlaws leaders in that market or 
um, EPL supporter group leaders or uh, a local USL League Two or NPSL or NISA uh, supporter group leaders and just have a conversation with them. Uh, give them some inside information about you know, who the ownership could be, is going to be, the venues you're looking at, ask them their opinions, make it a real dialogue so you're getting their opinion as well as sharing information with them. They'll all, all of a sudden feel part of the process. And as I talk to various people in a market about these things, I'm a pretty good judge of character or, or skill sets, I think, and I can identify which people are going to be best suited for that role. I mean, Liam and Andrew had been doing this sort of thing with Arsenal and, and, and incorporating um, charitable organizations, fundraising, um, crowd building uh, for a long time before, um, before uh, Ford Madison came along. And so it was pretty obvious that they were going to be the, the two to lead it. Now, if, if, if Andrew and Liam are at the top of your list, uh, is, is Dan Fallon at the bottom? Is he the worst person you've ever partnered with? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. I think he, he bought me a couple of beers when uh, uh, we went out for our first serious conversation uh, to talk over soccer. That, that alone makes him uh, off the bottom. Well, and you guys were basically quarantined together in the, that – that shed right at, on Bree Stevens field uh, for a long time. You know, the pod. So um, those early days were really special because yeah, actually Dan and I and Cuba and Jessica and Elizabeth were uh, kept together in we're quarantined <laughs> <laughs> in a six foot by 40 foot shell. And there was so much going on at that point. Every day was new. There was so much progress, so much to do. And we were all helping each other out uh, because we were all on top of each other. Uh, those early days of any startup are the most fun. So Dan was smart enough to get out when the fun's over. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I, I, I reminded <clears throat> Keith on the podcast last time that I, I shoveled the field on a Saturday and resigned on Monday. And he said I should, you know, I should have made a um, earlier decision, so I wouldn't have had to shovel the field, but, you know. Here then we, we wouldn't have had a Nizzy. That, that was the other thing I said on the, that was the other thing I said on the pod, that Nizzy owes us a big, big thank you. Um, Next time so. he's shoveling. <laughs> Bad back, Peter. Bad back. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, was Nizzy your favorite story of last year? What was your favorite story of last year? Because Nizzy, I think, you know, uh, Dan and I were joking about him being the, the center of, of the locker room. And, and, you know, when we talked to, to Connor Tobin, he said, no, that's, that's legitimately it. You put the, you know, the, that in the, in the middle and the, the spokes off of the hub, really. I mean, and it, it sounds like everybody loves him. Um, you know, when we talked to, to uh, you know, uh, Jeff from Madison 365, that was his favorite story. Was that your favorite story of last year? I think Nizzy is the most remarkable story of last year. Um, I don't know if I would say it's my favorite. You know, the, the fan stories for me are more favorite. Um, the, the trip to Lansing, especially at the end of the year, it was really a communal experience for people. And to celebrate the way everyone did, 
uh, was pretty special. Kind yeah. of a fairy tale, wasn't it? <clears throat> well, I was going to say, and that, you know, um, that was one of the other things Jake talked about on the call today was, you know, USL's goal of getting into these markets that don't have, don't have teams or, and that there's this opportunity to create these communities around these clubs that is like what he grew up with in, in England and a lot of people around the world. And I think, um, you know, even though I, I pursued you guys for a job, I was also slightly skeptical uh, in the early days of what this is going to look like. And um, I, you know, I think I kind of agree that the community aspect of this was um, something I couldn't have even imagined. Um, and that's what needs to be replicated, I think, throughout the country to make this a true soccer nation. You know, um, we'll talk a lot about the Chattanooga success, especially you know, with the uh, NISA team, and then what Madison has done, uh, and what Detroit City has done in a much larger market, but still at a grassroots level. Those three, I think, are examples of what needs to be done at dozens more uh, of small markets throughout the country to make this a true soccer nation. And, you know, one of the things that, that Dan and I talk about here is, is that the geographic distance, um, you know, is an impediment to developing players. But if you can develop teams in Boise, Idaho at, you know, USL League One or championship level, and that team, you know, has rewards for developing local players, you know, you start to solve one of that big, the, the big problems, which is, you know, we're, we're a much bigger, you know, you can't replicate like they did in, in if you've read Das Reboot from Raphael Honigstein, where, you know, they were putting training session centers up every 30 square miles or whatever, you know, you can't do that in the United States, but if you build those communities, it, it becomes possible. Yeah, certainly the, the geography helps with it. But really what it comes down to is creating a sense for the local people that this local team is worth their support. And the challenge we talked about earlier is that they can get better soccer on the internet or on TV for less money, for free. And so convincing them that this local team has meaning is what it's going to take for this country to become a true soccer nation. Uh, Dan, do you have any other, other soccer related questions? So Peter, can you still go to grave sites right now, even though you're quarantined? Are you still, you know, funny, you should ask, um, every day I try to go for a walk outside of the house. I think we're all trying to get, you know, a little out of the cocoon a little bit. Uh, today I took uh, about a, a half mile walk to a, my nearest cemetery, <laughs> uh, took a little walk around it and then, and then walked back. So, you know, it's a nice little 30-minute uh, trip out of the house. It's a Milwaukee's, Milwaukee Township's Union Cemetery. It's a tiny, old, old, old cemetery. Um, and it's the nearest one to my house. And, you know, funny thing, no one else was there. <laughs> <laughs> Any famous graves there? You know, it's funny, I thought there was. Uh, I, I found online that there was this, essentially the Edward R. Murrow of the Spanish-American War. And online it says, um, a German guy, H.V. Kaltenberg, I think is his name, that he was buried at Milwaukee's Union Cemetery. 
And I was like, oh my gosh, this is half a mile from my house. Well, it's winter and when there's snow on the ground, it's hard to see all the graves. So I explained it to myself the first three times I went there not finding them, that it was because there was snow on the ground. Well, then the snow uh, melted and I went back there and I still couldn't find them. And it's not that big of a cemetery. Uh, so I looked again online more carefully and I realized that HV is actually buried at a different Union Cemetery in Milwaukee, <laughs> about two miles west of that one. So Dan and I actually swapped Peter Cemetery stories very early on. Uh, I think uh, one of the first things you, you said to me, I, if I remember correctly, we were kind of sitting down for a chat and I mentioned I had lived near Princeton, New Jersey. And you said, oh, great cemetery in Princeton, great cemetery. And then Dan said that if you're ever late for a meeting, you know, Dan should should know why that was, right, Dan? Well, if you were if he was late and his shoes were wet. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was one time uh, we were, perhaps it was a UW Health System meeting, Dan, and it happened to be located pretty close to where former Chicago Blackhawks head coach Billy Ray is uh, is buried. And uh, yes. I was visiting Billy. That was it. And then Peter, my only other question for you before we let you go is uh, have you have you unearthed any Canton Invaders ephemera as you go through all of your, uh, and, and I should say this, uh, the, the Canton Invaders, I, I um, played an incredible, incredibly important role in my, in my life as a kid. I mean, they were the indoor soccer team when I lived in Canton, Ohio. They were, they were gods to me. Uh, I mean, I went to as many matches as I could. And um, so I just want to know if you've, you've found any ephemera. Well, I, by the way, I love the word ephemera. Thank you very much. My wife has a different <laughs> word for what I have down there. <laughs> I try to convince her to use ephemera. Um, today, no, it's a short answer. Not yet, but okay. I, I, I've been through 5% at best. So there may be stuff there. Although today I did find three unopened packs of 1980s MISL trading cards. Ooh, I had those. And, uh, Odds are pretty good that one of the players in there has spent time with the Canton Invaders. I remember the missile in the MISL, right? They were in the NASL? The Major Indoor Soccer League uh, was the one above the Canton Invaders, which was NPSL. NPSL, okay. Actually, prior to NPSL, it was called AISA, American Indoor Soccer Association. Essentially the same league. They just changed the name, I think, to keep the creditors at bay. <laughs> so <laughs> that, would the, the, the Cleveland Crunch were in the MISL, right? Yes, they were the major league. Yeah, so you had the Crunch, you had the San Diego Soccers, and, and later uh, the Milwaukee Wave signed their, their goalkeeper. Uh, Victor Nagara. Victor Nagara. Yeah, one a fantastic indoor. Well, and it's so funny to see uh, now his last name is escaping me. Up with uh, you know with the team in Green Bay over the summer, Tony Pierce uh, from the Wave as well. Tony was on the first Milwaukee Wave team, 1984-85. Milwaukee Wave is still going strong, playing down at the UWM uh, Panther Arena in downtown Milwaukee, the old Mecca Arena, and the Wave is the longest continuously run. Um, professional soccer team in the United States since 1984-85. Um, they're indoor, uh, so people sometimes don't recognize that. If you take out the word indoor and say outdoor, the longest continuously run team, 
is uh, forward Madison's foe in Richmond, the Richmond Kickers. Yeah. So, uh, Peter, we're going to let you go. Uh, but before we let you go, uh, we, want, we want to have you back to talk about the Milwaukee Wave and early Wisconsin soccer history. And Dan can tell stories about uh, Kia, right? That's, that's your guy? Kia was my guy. And Peter and I have also talked about um, Tim Tima. Tim was my, was my coach as a kid. Um, and I re- vividly remember, t- and Peter can, we can talk about this next time, but Tim was a bit of a hard man. And I, I think I was under eights and we would spend a long portion of practice working on slide tackle. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and yeah. if you're slide tackling in the indoor game, you're a particularly hard man. I mean, yes. yeah. Especially on those eighties pitches that we, we used to play <laughs> yes. on where yes. it was like they rolled out some carpet on, on concrete. I think my um, mom saw one of those practices and started to question whether I should still be playing soccer. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Peter, we want to thank you uh, for, for coming out today. We want to jump before we go to uh, what we hope is a continuing uh, segment with the uh, Wasatch Mingos, who uh, have a, a long-distance dedication to Captain Buddha today. Hello there. This is Robert from the Wasatch Mingos out here in sunny Utah, looking at some snow. Just wanted to record a message for everyone listening. I just want you all to think. Just remember, no matter how bad the world gets, no matter how crazy everything is, no matter how much shelter in place there is and how scared everyone is, I just need everyone to remember, Turbo is still 0-0-2 in our fantasy football league. And since all the leagues are paused right now, he's going to be 0-0-2 for a while. But don't worry, we'll keep you updated on that once a week, every week. Thank you. And uh, finally, uh, I'll say until next time, uh, forwards, not backwards, upwards, not forwards, and always twirling, twirling, twirling towards freedom. Hell hath no fury like an angry rich white man. You know that, Dan.